Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. In 2015, April Rain took to Twitter with the hashtag OscarsSoWhite. After all, 20 acting nominations went to white actors. It went viral, and a Hollywood reckoning began. By 2020, the Academy of Motion Pictures announced new measures to address representation and inclusion standards for the Oscars. In his new book, Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World, Washington Post alum Will Haygood writes about the representation of African Americans on screen, behind the camera, and its impact on America. I dare say things are starting to change, but it does become painful when blacks have to always watch historical dramas that are being twisted around to make people in the audience feel better. In this conversation, first recorded on March 16th for Washington Post Live, Haygood talks about the impact of the film The Birth of a Nation on American culture, how the exploitation genre of the 1970s was more empowering than it seemed, and how the truth of America, portrayed in an iconic photo from 1863, continues to be told in video today. Will, great to see you. Welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Likewise. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into your book, let's talk about the Oscars. What do you make of the Academy's efforts to be more inclusive? Well, I think that they're very significant. I think that they're very important people in this country love the movies, love going to the movies. They often want to see themselves on the screen. Um, And so when you have a year like 2015, when there were no Black Oscar nominees, in the follow-up year, 2016, there were no Black Oscar nominees as well. Uh, It does cause a lot of pain. Uh, In the Oscar, Oscars, in the organization, has tried uh, to get more members of black and brown people Mm -hmm. into their membership roles. And I think that's very important and very significant because movies are how we speak to the world in many many ways. Right, I was about to ask you, you know, in general, like Oscars, do they really do they really matter anymore, particularly culturally? And I guess by part the, the answer you just gave in terms of films, you would say yes. Yes. I mean, it matters simply because media in this country, in the world matters. And in the Oscar nominations sometimes show up on page one of newspapers and they can lead off uh news 
new shows. I mean, it's just big news. I mean, you know, it's covered by all the major newspapers. What happens at the Oscars? I mean, it is a a gigantic cultural entity in this country. You know, you, um, after the passing of the great actor, Sidney Poitier, you wrote this beautiful tribute uh, in the post where you wrote about Poitier. He had to represent a whole race of people. No other black man was prominent on the big or little screen before he showed up. He had to tutor white America with every movement of, of body and utterance from his lips. He moved with astonishing grace and had mellifluous diction. Talk about why that was so important, what Sidney Poitier did. Well, I think it was very significant because for this fact, in the country, Philadelphia, what do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> You're waiting for the classic line. That is a lovely, that is a, that is an epic moment in cinema history. But uh, it's a segregated country. It, you know, started from slavery and then it went into legal segregation and uh, segregated laws were written into the legal books. And so whites did not live near black people. And so many whites went to the movie theaters and the scene or the moment that they saw in a Sydney Porty, a film was a significant teachable moment uh, 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 for them. I think that's the reason why Sidney Poitier chose to play such saintly roles uh, so often. I mean, he was never a villain. Uh, and I think he knew that, yes, he was involved in the craft of acting, but he was also involved uh, in the very important craft of teaching white America about a whole race of people. Uh, was it unfair that he had this double burden? Yes, that he couldn't be, and that couldn't be Marlon Brando and play a variety of roles. Uh, it, yes, it was, it was not fair to him, but that's what time it was in America. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that was important what he did because of um, how you start this book, and, and follow, <laughs> follow me here. You begin your book discussing Hollywood's first blockbuster, which was uh, The Birth of a Nation, 1915. It played for four years. But in that same period, um, the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan happened. So how do you see those two linked? And, and what does that say about the power of cinema and imagery? Yes, at that time in 1915, one out of four people in this country went to see this very mm. racist, vile, vulgar movie, The Birth of a Nation. Um, and so th those one out of four people were often wowed by the movie. Uh, and because of its imagery and its storytelling, uh, but it was also a very harmful movie to Black Americans. Um, it showed the Ku Klux Klan as heroic, and it showed Black men as rapists. Uh, and so it was a very terrifying movie for Blacks. And it also had 
a premiere inside of Woodrow Wilson's White House. So that gave mm-hmm. the movie an extra cachet. Uh, and so senators started talking about the movie. Southern school teachers started uh, telling stories about the movie. They started assigning Thomas Dixon's novel, uh, which was the source material for the movie. Uh, and so it really became the Star Wars, the Jaws of its time. Uh, and it came out in 1915. And it really ignited nationwide protests from Blacks and many whites who were friends of Blacks. And they marched around theaters uh, and they wrote letters uh, to their senators and to their House members. Uh, they were very appalled by this movie. People went to jail because they were picketing this movie. Uh, it created a sensation, one of the first epic civil rights moments, one might say, in this country. Or Incredible. one of the most the, important yeah. when it comes to you know, the arts, you know, the most important when it came to the arts, certainly. Right. And at a time, 1915, you know, the early part of the 20th century, when that was the way folks communicated, that's the way people saw life. And so this, you know, horribly racist depiction came to be viewed as, as really real life, particularly the, the, the depiction of African-Americans. But you talk about uh, in your book going to the movies as a child and, and seeing only white faces. When did that start to change and how did that change and it initially manifest itself? Yeah. And that's a wonderful question. When I was a kid, I was growing up in Ohio, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and my mother would send me to the theater on Sunday afternoons with 50 cents. Cost 25 cents to get in, and the other 25 cents was for my popcorn. And this was in the mid 60s. And I sat in the theater all by myself, nine, 10, 11 years old. And I saw stars like, uh, and like Doris Bay and Jimmy Stewart, Robert Mitchum, Rock Hudson, Henry Fonda. Fell in love with all these people. They were like, you know, on a 60 foot wide screen, hmm. they were heroes. And they were cowboys and they were, uh, you know, folks doing good uh, uh, on the big screen. Uh, But they all had one thing in common. At my neighborhood theater in the mid 60s, I never saw one black figure in a leading role on screen, never. And then I went, went away to college in the 1970s and I would come home for the summers and there was a new theater uh, that was downtown, and it was called the Southern Theater. Uh, and there were so many Black folks going to the Southern Theater after church. Why? Because the Southern Theater was showing the so-called Black exploitation movies. I mean, mm-hmm. so these were movies that starred Pam Greer, Fred Williamson, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Richard mm-hmm. Roundtree, Richard Pryor, I mean. And so then it really became clear to me, Jonathan, that there were two narratives about storytelling in Hollywood, a white narrative and a narrative that suddenly started to flourish 
because this because this renegade filmmaker by the name of Melvin Van Peoples made a movie called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and it made a ton of money. And so Hollywood had to suddenly wake up and say, hey, we have to make movies because there are people in urban areas who want to see movies with Black folk. No, Will, I, when you said the word black exploitation, you had a qualifier or modifier in there. You called it so-called black black exploitation. Why'd you do that? Well, because uh, it was a new movement. It was very novel, and the the term really doesn't pay homage to the fact that these actors and actresses had to find work and they had to create work and in their mind they were not exploiting anyone they were working they were trying to open doors in hollywood it was an naacp official of all people in la who coined that phrase black exploitation because he was upset that he didn't get a PR role in one of those movies. But all that oh. said, that moment, uh, and that moment gave us a lot of talented people. And those people, they got roles in the movies, in cinematography, in photography, and so they were able to join the Hollywood unions, which at that time were were lily white in the mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, 70s. Those unions were like steadfastly all white. And if you were black, it was nearly impossible to break into those unions unless you got a role. And white movies didn't really hire blacks to be cinematographers or photographers. Uh, and so you had this moment in the early 1970s. It was called the black exploitation moment. But it's what it did is it exploited opportunity for those blacks who were hungry to get into the film business. Mm-hmm. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let me ask you one more thing about this, because um, when I was growing up, you know, black exploitation had sort of a double meaning. Um, on the one hand, it was white Hollywood um, making these movies that stereotyped uh, African-Americans and stereotyped how we lived our lives and, and how we were in this country. That, to me, was always the meaning of black exploitation. It was something that was being done to us by the films coming out of Hollywood. So I, I've got that wrong. I'm not that I got it wrong, but that's a misreading of, of what that movement is or was. I really think it uh, is. I mean, and also, Jonathan, there were very few Black 
black feature writers uh, on newspapers at the time who could have written more nuanced stories about what was happening. I mean, there were many actors, actresses who came out of this movement who thought that with the success of these movies, that they would get uh, bigger roles, if any, in mainstream Hollywood uh, films. Uh, and that didn't happen. It really, uh, I think, uh, is linked to the fact that Roots came out in 1976, right? Kind of at the end of the black exploitation movement. And Roots, of course, was a major phenomenal sensation. Oh, yeah. Alex Haley's book about his family's roots and slavery and their long passage here to America. Uh, and so many, many black Hollywood actors took roles in Roots because they simply wanted to work. But it also was the first time um, in this country where whites, and because this series ran for many days, where whites all of a sudden started to look at the screen and see Black actors and actresses in Roots, and they wondered, who is this person? Where did this person mm -hmm. come from? Leslie Uggams, John Amos, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Roundtree, there was Ben Vereen, and there was Louis Gossett Jr. Many of these people had been lurking around mainstream Hollywood for years and couldn't get roles. And so they loved the opportunity uh, to act in Roots. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk um, more about the, the business side of Hollywood, but I got to get you on, on one more uh, cultural aspect of Hollywood, and that is the popularity and staying power of the the white the white savior narrative in film. The recent example would be the Green Book. Another potent example uh, was The Blind Side. Why do you think that that narrative has such staying power? Well, I think it's because uh, there's a lot of money in the suburbs. Uh, so many suburbs in this country are white. Mm -hmm. I think the myth in this country has always been that whites, um, whites have been the savior. I tell the story in the book, Jonathan, of this movie, Mississippi Burning. Uh, now, it's about the three civil rights workers who were murdered in Mississippi in 1964. Andrew Goodman, James, James Cheney, and and Michael Schwerner, uh, in a movie, a movie was made. It starred Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe. Uh, and it was about the two white FBI agents who came down to Mississippi on white horses and white hats and, and solved the mystery. Total fiction. Uh, there were no white FBI agents who saved the day. America didn't even have an F a, a, a full-time FBI office in the state of Mississippi. Now, FBI agents did go into Mississippi later in that search. But it was LBJ who sent soldiers 
Navy personnel into Mississippi. And it was Native Americans who lived in Mississippi who found the car where the three civil rights workers had been murdered. So, uh, you know, that's always been a trope in cinema. I think it's easy for the people who run the studios to keep making movies with white heroes. I mean, you know, things things are, I, I, and I dare say things are starting to change, but it does become painful when Blacks have to always watch uh, historical dramas that are being twisted around uh, to make people in the audience feel better. I, mm -hmm. I think I really think that's why we have some of the controversy now of certain school districts starting to ban books about black history, about painful stories that are the truth. I mean, Right. Lord knows if we run from the truth, we are in deep trouble, deep trouble. Right, right. Very deep trouble. Let's talk about you write about a McKinsey study in your book. It has two major findings. I'm going to start with one and see if we have time to get to the other one, um, where this McKinsey study found that most of the opportunities given to black talent comes from shows with at least one black person in a senior role. And as we see a new class of of black media moguls emerging and thriving. Tyler Perry, been there for a while. Shonda Rhimes, Jordan Peele. I just watched his, his upcoming movie, Master. I don't know which part was more scary, but we'll be talking to some folks about that later. But should we expect a sort of virtuous cycle that would lead to even, even greater representation? Is that the answer? Uh, yes, I really think though, that the small screen and with the cable companies like Apple, Netflix, Hulu, I, I simply think that they've seen what time it is on the streets of this country mm -hmm. and in the world even. And I think that they want to show more movies, more miniseries, with black and brown people. I think that they will. There's room at the table. I mean, you know, and like that line from uh, Hamilton, uh, we just want to be in the room. I, I think that's the reason Spike Lee, uh, for his last movie, he went to Netflix because he said when he went around shopping uh, um, his Vietnam film, Oh, the, the five bloods. bloods. Yeah, uh, that often there would be no whites in the suites where he walked into, in the film suites, you know, the studio chiefs. And he said, when I went to Netflix, bam, there were black folk in the room. And they understood me. They understood my language. They knew what I wanted to do. They knew why the story was important and i think it's important uh to have representation look it's a multi-racial i mean it's a multi-racial nation we can't run from that i mean it just is i mean 
But look, Jonathan, it's only been in the past two, three years where we've seen TV commercials with mixed race couples, right? Couples, black and white couples, or couples who are uh, uh, same sex marriage, Mm -hmm. married couples. I mean, you know, why has it taken America so long to get there? I mean, this has only been in the past two, three years. And still, most major mainstream movies in this country are fronted by Black men. Now, that's not to say that there aren't heroes in my book, because there are white heroes in the book. There are people like uh, Ralph Nelson, uh, Stanley Kramer. I mean, and then there's Brad Pitt, more recent. These are people who want to tell stories that are not the usual stories, who want to put Black stories on screen, because people will go see a good story. No, uh, absolutely, they will. Um, I'm just going to put out one data, one other data point um, that you write about from that McKinsey study. Um, and uh, one, it says that America's film industry is the country's least diverse business um, and that its systemic anti-Black biases cost it $10 billion annually as a result of that. But in the five minutes that we have left, Will, I want to get you to talk about the story of Gordon. Why did you choose to end the book with his story? And Gordon is um, the man who escaped the Louisiana plantation during the Civil War and made his way to a Union camp. And you, you might, folks might not know the name Gordon, but they know the picture that was taken of him. And his is the, the iconic and painful photograph of black man with um, shirtless showing his just slashed over back from what could only be um, torture uh, at the hands of folks at those plantations from from the whips. Um, Talk about the historian, why you decided to end your book that way. Yeah. Here's why, Jonathan. There has been much glory in the world of cinema in this country. But there's also been much pain. Um, And it's easy to think of movies as hooray for Hollywood. But the tone of this book is hooray for the truth. Uh, And if you look at this country, it is still split right down the middle. That's why people inside of our country attack the U.S. Capitol. We turned the picture around. We showed the unattractive backside of this country. Uh, And I think that if you look at Gordon, started in the Civil War, uh, and then some years later, you have this movie, 1915, in the birth of a nation. And then you have the 1919 infamous uh, Red Summer where there were riots. Uh, and then you go years later and you have Martin Luther King Jr., 1963 March on Washington. 
two of the biggest names at that march were Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. So when you turn cinema around, when you turn our country around, we all love our country. We all love the movies. We all want to keep going to the movies. But we also must love the truth. Uh, and the truth, part of the truth of America is the backside of Gordon. That's part of the truth. And that visual, uh, that cinematic photograph uh, is as important as what young Miss Frazier did on the day that George Floyd was being murdered. Uh, she made a mini movie uh, of the pain in the backside of this country. Will Haygood, author of Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World. Thank you very much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. I'm a big admirer. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.